Well, good morning. This morning as we pray, coming before God's word, I'd ask that in a a posture of submission, instead of closing your hands, will you open them up? As we place this word above us. Father God, we come in submission. We come before the authority of your word. We long for more of you. We have sung the praises of your son. God, we ask that our lives would sing just as loudly to your beauty and to your works, to your love and who you are. Father, receive the offering of our hearts as you transform our minds, transform our lives, and make us even more yours. In the name of the one who gives us life, we pray. Amen. It. Some ministries have it, some don't. Most churches want it, if you have it. When a church has it, everyone can tell. When one doesn't, everyone can tell. And it, or itlessness, is obvious. In his aptly book titled It, um, Craig Groeschel outlines what it is that we all kind of know, or at least know by experience. That's a really vague collection of words, and yet something tells me that every one of you knows exactly what he means. There's something we experience when we encounter someone whose life is just enmeshed in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. There is something that we experience when we enter into a place. And our soul knows it, and the Jesus in us resonates with the Jesus that we are experiencing. It's what I call the Holy Spirit-it factor. What else would you call it? A genuine experience, and it forces us to ask the question, what really is it at the heart of everything? Like if you were at a church, and that church had it, right? It just had a a thick presence. Can you create that? Can you make it happen? You can't force God's hand. So is it just simply him then who decides when and where that happens and we have no part in it? Our discipleship is taught to us in scripture doesn't seem to indicate that either. There's this interplay between us. And yet so often in our own lives and in our churches, we get distracted from it. You can even get going on a course of really, really good things, but if they're not the ultimate thing, they're just still things. What's fascinating to me as I read through the seven letters to the seven churches in the beginning of the book of Revelation is despite the fact that John is preparing them for persecution, despite the fact that we're going to encounter within the rest of this book beasts and dragons and and atheistic powers that have punished John for not being willing to worship the emperor himself, for people who will not bow down to money or earthly forms of authority, the greatest danger that the church encounters... In the book of Revelation isn't any of these things. It's apathy. It's complacency. It's the slow but insidious movement away from it. 
And I think that everyone can relate to this fact because none of us will probably ever wake up one day and say, today's the day that I'm going to let my faith start drifting away from Jesus Christ. And yet we can all recall times in our lives where that's just simply been the case. Today we're going to read the first letter to the church in Ephesus. And as I described last time, this is probably as a mailman would have delivered these. So Ephesus would have been the first church, probably about 50 miles from Patmos, um, 37 miles to the coast and probably another 13 or so inland in order to get to Ephesus. We're going to talk a little bit more about that city and how in each of these letters, it's the uniqueness of that city that gets the unique attention and words from Jesus. And I find it so comforting that already now every single church that we encounter in the New Testament has its own characteristics. It has its own unique flavor. Every single one of us has our own unique contribution to the body of Christ. The other thing that baffles me as I encounter this book is the literary mastery that went into the writing of it. I'll show you just an example this morning of how the seven letters to the seven churches are even structured at the beginning of this book. You can see both by the way we've arranged the lights on the stage as well as what's on the screen right now um, is that the letters are arranged in a, in a very famous Jewish form of, uh, of a literary device called chiasm, which is essentially like a, a burger. And the idea is that you sort of work from the outside to the center, and the most important message comes at the center, but it informs each of the other pieces moving out, and they're all interacting with each other. And so, one and seven end up having a lot of similarities. Two and six do, three and five do, and it points us towards Thyatira. And I'll give you a couple of quick examples. For, exa- for example, when the each letter ends at the beginning, it starts with, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. Then it says, to those who are victorious, I will give. And then there's some sort of promise that Jesus makes to them. Well, those fall in the same order already in 1, 2, and 3. And then when we get to Thyatira, the order, there's an audio cue, right? Because these letters would have been read out loud to all the churches when they would have arrived there. And every listener would have been like, wait a second, why did you change it up at the end? And then the order switches as it goes back out from 4 to 5, 6, and 7. And so all these are the types of things that alert us to the fact there's this literary device at play called a chiasm, C-H-I-A-S-M, at work. I'll give you another example. One and seven deal with issues of love and the opportunity and promise of being able to eat. Um, And the threat, of course, that comes in the first one is that their lampstand would be taken away and they would see that they'd be spit out of Jesus' mouth. Smyrna and Philadelphia are two churches that don't have an I have against you saying in them. Each of the other letters all do. Jesus says, you've done this and I know this about you. However, I have this against you. And then he calls them out on something. Except apparently these two churches were a lot healthier because you don't see this happening in Smyrna and Philadelphia. And then there's this sort of line, but you have some, right? There's, there's some distortion that's taking place in the church, but you have some who have not fallen to this. And there's sort of this, um, there's something happening, there's sort of a division within those churches. Some people going one way, some people going another. And then we get to the center of Thyatira and it says, all the churches will know. And it's interesting to see that even within each one letter to each individual church, he's using plural verbs or plural nouns to talk about the churches themselves. So yesterday I drew up a little chart to sort of explain all of this, because that's what you do when you read your Bible, right? You draw charts. And you can see each one starts off with this line. There's a sevenfold pattern in each. The angel of the church in, right. And then these are the words of the I know sings, but I have this against you. 
a command or an ultimatum that Jesus gives, a promise that he gives to those who are victorious. And then they close, of course, with the whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, except after letter four, in which case those two last things switch order. So here it is. This is the letter now to the church in Ephesus as we kick off these letters. Chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. So Jesus goes through this extensive sort of uh, praise and acknowledgement of the things that this church has all been through. And at the beginning, he uniquely describes himself, right? These are the words of the one who... And then if you go back to chapter 1, verses 9 to 20, you'll see all of the words they're used to describe Jesus get recycled in the seven letters, each uniquely told to the different churches. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So let's talk about the people for a minute who would have received this letter. This is the city of Ephesus, right? We've got the book of Ephesians that's written to them earlier on. Um, Paul visits Ephesus in the book of Acts, so we know that he actually served as a pastor there. This is the most important, probably, of all the seven churches. And the church in Ephesus actually goes on to become the center of the church for Asia Minor. And massive church councils are being held there by the time we hit the 5th century. This is a Colosseum type of thing that uh, survives in the city of Ephesus to this day, a 24,000-seat stadium. A couple years right before this letter would have been written, they would have hosted the Olympic Games. Um, Ephesus was a big and prominent city. It was a commercial and religious trade center, and so there was traffic from all over the world coming into this place. It was the fourth biggest city in the Roman Empire after Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch, and it would have had over a quarter million people at this point in time already. One of its most significant features it was that, is that it was home to the Temple of Artemis, which would have looked something like this. Artemis is one of the, the Temple of Artemis is one of the seven wonders of the world. That platform that's lifted up that it's all built upon was over 100,000 square feet. That's the equivalent of two football fields. This building was four times the size of the Parthenon. It was such a distinguishing figure, it was minted onto coins. It was a distinguishing factor of the city, and people came from all over not only to see one of, the, this, one of the seven wonders of the world, but to worship Artemis there, also called Diana by the Romans. Now, we also know that because of this temple in the book of Acts and Paul's preaching there, that the artists who made all, um, the things that people would sell, all the trinkets, started to lose their business because the Christians started growing in this city and it was hurting their business and their bottom line. And so there's a riot in Ephesus. And of course, Paul gets run out of town at that time. In the book of Acts, his parting words to them are this, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. 
Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. Shortly after the time of the writing of this book, the number of temples that existed in this city, even to the emperors themselves, increased to four. There were two or three at the time when Revelation was written, and then a fourth got built not long after that. We know that Paul himself spent almost three years there planting this church with Priscilla and Aquila. So that would have been about 52 AD, which means by the time that this letter is written to them, this church has been around for over four decades. It's got some momentum to it. It would have definitely been by far the largest of all the seven churches. So their first pastor would have been Paul along with Priscilla and Aquila. Then he leaves Timothy there in charge. And legend teaches, which is pretty well documented, I think, that John actually became the pastor then next to this church. That's a pretty good start. We got Paul, Timothy, and John as your first three pastors. That's laying some pretty good foundation, I would think, for what's going to come. It's influential. It's large. It's got all kinds of momentum. But as N.T. Wright points out, if you were to visit the city of Ephesus today, the one thing you will not find there anymore isn't the temple of Artemis or the Colosseum or all these relics that point to its rich history, but that supposedly today there's not a single church left in that entire city or any of its surrounding villages for that matter. But if you would have told the Ephesians at that time that that was going to be their history as it would unfold, nobody would have believed you. They would not have believed you. People don't believe that hotbeds of Christian growth could ever disappear. They would dissipate. They could fall by the wayside. Nobody would ever believe that Northwest Iowa could ever arrive at the place where it really wasn't in Bible Belt country anymore. I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first, or you have forsaken your first love however you want to translate that. And like I said, nobody wakes up one morning and, and says, today's the day my faith's going to start slipping. Today's the day I'm going to start neglecting Jesus in my faith. We know that this church was, as, Paul, as Jesus even says, I know your perseverance. I know your hard work. I know people have come in and tried to infiltrate. I know that you've suffered for all of this. You've been working hard on multiple fronts to protect the orthodoxy and the orthopraxy within your church. You've labored to this extent. But as is so often the case in Christianity, I think the same thing happens in Ephesus. Is that Christ gets replaced with the cause. And just like a Christian can get all excited about something that falls under the lordship of Jesus and a command of his redemption in the world, like, like, like arguing and advocating for and being a big, big person involved in the pro-life movement, or maybe you're, you're all about social justice, or maybe you're about human trafficking, and it's so easy to find something that was initially prompted by our faith to... Take the place of our faith. Where the gospel gets reduced to a social gospel. Or a series of practices. That over time end up becoming a little more empty. Where our Christianity becomes a, a series of obligations that we go through. It's somehow slowly, Christ is just replaced with the cause. There is a poison in the water of the American church too. And so often this happens to us. Because you know, in none of these letters, Jesus says, what I have against you is, your worship just isn't that great. Or your Sunday school program's a little bit lacking. 
where your missions committee could probably step it up a little bit. We're talking about the things that are really at the core of who we are as followers of Jesus. And we want to ask ourselves, how does that happen? How does that happen to the biggest church? It probably had big programs. It probably had a reputation. It probably had multiple people on staff. Commenting on this passage, William Mount says this. He says, every virtue carries within it the seed of its own destruction. Isn't that true for each of us? You, the means to the end can become the end in and of itself when we get lost in the middle of it. And all little Christians start to build their little empires unto themselves and lose sight of a kingdom. Bruce Metzger says it like this. The presence of Christ departs when well-intentioned people, zealous to find the right way, depart from the ultimate way, which is love. It sounds so simple, doesn't it? How do you end up there? And yet these are the churches of itlessness. This is how generations start to fall away from falling in line with the church, with discipleship, because they've fallen out of love with Christ. And they've fallen out of love with their brothers and sisters and the things that he commanded us to do for one another. There's no church today in Ephesus. In each of his responses, when Jesus says, I have this against you, he gives them some sort of application. This is what you're supposed to do. These are the three commands that stand out in this passage. Consider, repent, and do. Or as Daryl Johnson says in his book, Discipleship on the Edge, he says, if you want to remember it a little bit this way, do it like this. Remember, repent, redo. Remember, repent, and redo. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Remember what it was like back then. Remember the things that you did at the beginning. Anybody who's ever been married already kind of knows this. But man, when you first fell in love, when I fell in love with Nicole as a student here at Dort, I could stay up till 3 o'clock in the morning. We could talk. Time was irrelevant. I would drive great distances to see her. It didn't matter. I would spend all my money. If it was the last few dollars I had, if we could get a date or, or be able to go out together because you were just consumed by it. It was, it was taking over. And if you're in love or you've been in love, you know this feeling. And if you're not careful and don't tend to love, it has a tendency to just become a series of motions after a while. Many married couples will tell you, I don't know how we ended up getting here to this place where it's just not there anymore. We didn't wake up one day and decide that that would happen, but it, it does if you don't tend to the first things first and keep it there. Like those first in love, remember and then repent. You want to change something? Repent literally means to make a U-turn, to change direction. Every great revival that the church has ever experienced in history has been marked by repentance. To be able to name it and say, God, I have fallen. If you're sitting here and you're thinking, man, my faith is not what it was. I remember what it was like when I was on fire in my faith. And I don't know where it was, but it, it just sort of like fell through my fingertips and my grasp. And it's just not there right now. How do I recreate that? How do I make that happen? Part of it is just repentance. Jesus, I'm so sorry. And true to the gospel of grace, he never just leaves us there. There's one more verb. Redo. Do the stuff you did back at the beginning. I heard a story a while back about a guy who 
was so angry at his wife because she had disappointed him in their marriage time and time and time again. And he had gotten to the point where he felt like he had taken way too many bruises, way too many hurts from her. And he wanted to pay her back. In fact, he wanted a divorce. So he actually went to a counselor not to repair their marriage, but to find out psychologically how he could hurt her the worst when he dropped the bomb and the D word on her and said, that's it, we're done. Well, the counselor, seeing through his plan, says to him, well, what you need to do if you really want to hurt her good is just lavish gifts on her. Bring her flowers. Take her out. Spend money on her. Tell her she's beautiful. Tell her you love her. Do it for 90 days, over and over and over again. And then when you drop the bomb, it'll hurt so bad. Well, after 90 days of walking through this practice again, by the time he comes back into the counselor, he doesn't want a divorce anymore because the actions have reminded him of this person he fell in love with back at the beginning. And if you're wondering what to do in a stagnant spiritual life, the same principles apply. Redo the stuff that you did at first. Why else would Jesus tell us that we need to receive the kingdom of God like a child? Go back to the beginning, back to the basics. Take all the extra practices out of our faith and just come back to being enamored with, in love with, the person of Jesus. Because did you see, see the threat in the passage? If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. The lampstand, the light, the heartbeat of all of this, out of the seven churches, the seven lamps, this is the threat of Jesus. I will come, I'll take it away. I'll pull it out. Unplug it, gone. If you're just doing this for all the motions, you're not doing it for me, and you've lost the heart of Christianity. This is no small threat. And I think this letter challenges each of us to ask ourselves that same question. Because Christian maturity, you guys, means that you acknowledge that you never actually become mature. The true measure of our spirituality is only an increase in hunger. It's a desire for more. Because if you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, that you want more. And then there's the promise. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And I love this promise. You guys, this image hasn't happened in the Bible for 65 books. The tree of life. Remember this from the Genesis story? It was the other tree. In Genesis 3.22, Adam and Eve are expelled from the Garden of Eden, not because God is angry at them and not because they are being punished. It says, so that they will not take and eat from the tree of life and live forever. God wants to restore the path to him in order to put eternal life back on the table. And so the image of this is taken away. We are mortal beings. We are not gods unto ourselves. We don't live forever. There is no life apart from the Lamb. There is no life apart from Christ. But now that he has brought that way back, the tree of life comes back on the table. Because the cross has become the tree of life. And why, why in the book of, F, in the letter to the Ephesians would he include this? Why this imagery? In the gardens that surround the temple of Artemis, it was a famous tree known throughout that land that if you came within a certain distance of it, for whatever crime you had committed, you could acquire asylum in the presence of that tree. It's as if Jesus is saying to the Ephesians, you think you got a tree in your city that's something special? You think they could free you from pardon you from whatever it is that you've done? I've got a tree for you. This isn't in the temple of the garden of Artemis. This is the tree of life. 
And then we see it again, of course, at the end of this book again. And that's the offer that's back on the table. That's what Jesus wants to restore for his people to remind us. We don't have life apart from him. There is nothing. There is no existence. It is here and here. That's why he's calling everybody back to the first love. Do what you did at first. Go back to the beginning. Acknowledge you're on the wrong path and come back here. Come and fall in love with me all over again. You don't just need asylum in front of the tree in the gardens that surround the temple of Artemis. What you're really looking for is the tree of life. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we want you as our first love. And we know that even our good intentions within our faith sometimes take us away. And that the evil one is so good at distracting us with things that seem good, but they're just not ultimate. They're just not you. And Father, we pray for the wisdom to know the difference. We pray over this campus that, that you would reign, that you would be supreme. That we would be able to do and partake in a lot of good things for you. But that you would be the only great thing in our life. And wherever it is in each one of our hearts that you're convicting us that we need to put you back there where we've reached for comfort and security in something other than you. Father, call us back to the vibrance of life that you want to give us. Instead of the pale comparisons we try to create for ourselves. And Father, whether these things in our lives are, have been intentional or unintentional, we just pray that you'd protect that for us. That you would always have the rightful place in this campus and in our hearts and in our lives. That we wouldn't lose our first love. It would always be you. And that everything else would find its purpose in that light. May we be strong and robust and vibrant. May the light of your sun shine brightly in this place. May people experience the Holy Spirit it factor of you in us and here because and only because you reign here. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We stand and receive a blessing in the rest of your day. Brothers and sisters in Christ, may you be madly in love. May your love take over your life. May it be irrational even if it needs to be at times. May you be renewed by it, transformed by it, saved by it, changed by it, propelled by it. May Christ stand center in you today, and may everybody you come into contact with experience it. Amen. Have a great day.